Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, I'm Mark Bittman. Welcome to food. We have some interesting guests this week. We'll do recipes as usual, some very fall-focused recipes. As always, you can call us with any questions, and we now have an email address. So advanced. Anyway, the uh, hotline is 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. And our new email address is bitmanpod at gmail.com. B-I-T-T-M-A-N-P-O-D at gmail.com. Okay, on with the show. As it is real autumn now, it's time for winter squash soup or pumpkin soup or butternut squash soup or whatever you want to call it. Any of the hard-skinned orange, pale orange, yellow squashes will work for this. I think that the pumpkins that you buy for jack-o'-lanterns are probably the worst. But as I said, butternut, kabocha, acorn, smaller pumpkins, anything you like, any of the sort of more esoteric so-called heirloom varieties. They'll all work for this soup, which is amazing stuff. Can be made with water instead of stock. Uh, can be made with non-dairy milk. I'm going to give you my sort of classic version, but this can be made vegan 
with no work whatsoever. You can add shiitake mushrooms to this to make give it more body. You can add some rice for more body. You can add shrimp or crab to turn it into something approaching a main course. It is one of the most versatile and creamy soups with or without cream that you can make. Awesome stuff. Start by putting a couple tablespoons of olive oil or butter in a large pot over medium heat. Melt that. Add a chopped onion. Cook that until the onion softens a couple of minutes. Then add three pounds of cut up and peeled pumpkin or winter squash. So you'll obviously want to do that in advance. So about three pounds cut into big chunks, two inch cubes, let's say. Then add salt and pepper, of course, and sage or rosemary are both great, a tablespoon or so of those fresh. And then about five cups of stock. That can be vegetable stock. That can be chicken stock. That can be carrot stock. It can be water. It can be any liquid, really. But obviously, the more body the stock has, the more body your final product will have. But this water is great here. So then bring that to a boil, cover it, lower the heat, partially cover it, I would say. Lower the heat and let it bubble gently for 20 minutes, maybe 30, until the squash is really soft, like just about falling apart. Turn the heat off and use it carefully. Use an immersion blender, I mean, or you can transfer this to a standing blender, but easier with an immersion blender to puree this. And then add a cup of cream or milk or half and half or non-dairy milk. Reheat that, season it to taste, and serve with any of the variations I mentioned at the beginning. A beautiful, fundamental, essential, fabulous fall recipe. My guests today are a pair that left me feeling incredibly inspired, Natalie Bazile and Melanie Edwards. You have likely heard of Natalie. She's an accomplished writer and filmmaker. Her novel, Queen Sugar, about siblings in Louisiana who come together to run the family's sugarcane farm, was made into a TV series by Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey. Her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, Celebrating African America's Farmers, Land, and Legacy, is a beautiful anthology that examines Black people's connection to the American land from emancipation to today. One of the stories in Natalie's new book is that of Melanie Edwards, a first-generation farmer whose journey of reclaiming farming landed her on a 20-acre mixed vegetable farm on rural Whidbey Island, that's Washington, where she immersed herself in small-scale agricultural practices. Edwards recently launched Ebony by Nature, a fiber farm, and is extending her knowledge in seed growing and saving. I'm really happy to welcome Natalie and Melanie to the show, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation. There's a certain weight to this book because there's a way to tell this story in one voice, you know, the story of African-Americans and the land and history and farming. But the power of telling it in, I don't know how many people are in this book, 30 or 40 at least, right? As you've done, it's just, it's like a play. It's almost, or a series of one person plays. I don't know. It's just, there's an overwhelming, really rich experience about it, especially for a book that's you know, you're largely the editor. So it, it's sort of unexpected how emotionally powerful it is, I thought. Thank you, Mark. I want to make sure that we welcome Melanie, especially, whose story here is not about Black farming in the South, as so many of these, not surprisingly, maybe are, but about farming in the Pacific Northwest, even Alaska, even though your family's from Mississippi, if I read that right. So thank you for joining 
You have a quote from Leah. I guess we'll talk about Leah at some point. But you have a quote from Leah that's the KKK, the White Citizens Council, and Monsanto will all rub their hands together in glee saying we convinced them to hate the earth and now it's all ours, which is a fabulous quote, really. And, you know, if you listen to many popular voices... In general, you'd come to the conclusion that farming is just a terrible thing, terrible work, sheer drudgery. Anyone who could escape from it is doing themselves and their children a favor. And you'd conclude that that, and many people did conclude that, for especially for black people, that was black people should move as far away from farming as they can. But the central message of We Are Our Own Harvest is not only about perseverance of black farmers, but about the core nature of farming, not only, again, not only for black people, but for many people, that farming and agriculture, as you say, is a path to liberation. And a lot of this book is about joy. Your interview with Food First, you said a lot of what I just said, that farming is, to a lot of people, farming is only a struggle, a story of strife and struggle and hardship. But you say that it's also a story of joy. And and when you read these stories, they're stories of family, of food and love and celebration and good hard work, but work that often is worthwhile. And this book is meant to be celebratory and affirming and inspiring hopeful. So can you tell us what you found to be the most joyful, the most fun, the most liberating of these stories? Just give us a little of that flavor, if you would. Well, I think for me, as someone who has always just had such a deep appreciation and respect for farmers, probably the best part was meeting them in person. You know, I think a lot of times, Mark, people talk about Black farmers, but they don't talk to Black farmers. And so there's this way in which the voices of the people who are doing this work is kind of erased and Black farmers become kind of this abstract monolith, right? I understand why, but I think that for me, the biggest joy in all of these stories was talking to them and hearing their voices and being with them on the land. And whether I was talking to young farmers like Melanie, who are pulling from their own personal histories that they may be discovering or rediscovering, or talking to older Black farmers who have been in this for generations and who remember their family stories. It was such a pleasure for me to interact with them and hear their voices and to have them recall these moments. And so I think of two right off the bat, in addition to Melanie, whose story I just loved. I'm thinking of the Nelsons in Sondheimer, Louisiana. They are a father and his four adult sons who are commodity farmers. And Mr. Nelson is really a wealth of information. To see him, he is a unassuming man in his probably mid-60s. Doesn't talk a lot, but you can see as soon as you meet him that He is proud of the work that he has done. He's proud of his family. He's proud of his legacy. And he was probably the second farmer I met and spent time with. Melanie, I met Leah and Naima Pennyman at Soulfire first. I met Melanie second. And then I went and I spent time with Mr. Nelson. And there is a quiet dignity about this man. And when we were standing out in front of his house with his four sons, he started by telling me the story of his grandfather or great-grandfather and how this was a man who, after emancipation, wanted to farm, spent 20 years 
toiling in Mississippi to pay off land that this white landowner had promised him. And then on the day that he was making that final payment, the man said, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to let you buy this farm after all. And just to see the way he held the pain of that experience. And you can imagine what that must have been like for him. And then he went on to tell the story of how that ancestor left Mississippi. He had no choice. He had no power at all in that situation, but he persevered and he left Mississippi, ended up settling in Louisiana, eventually acquired some land. And that is part of the land. His descendants, Mr. Nelson's father, ended up on the land that Mr. Nelson is now farming. But then to hear Mr. Nelson talk about the challenges that he has faced as a farmer, going to the USDA office and them. He told the story of him going to the USDA office with this idea about some land that he wanted to buy, a thousand acres. And then how the USDA agents ended up gathering all the information from him and then going around him and securing that same land for another farmer. So to stand there in the heat of, you know, I think I was with Mr. Nelson and his sons in June in Louisiana and to hear the crickets and see the land and to know what this family has had to do to hold on to that land was both inspiring and infuriating. I think of the Bluefords in South Carolina, again, a father and his three adult sons. And O'Neill Bluford was kind of the family spokesperson, but O'Neill's a poet. And to hear him talk about what it means to climb on that tractor every day and to see, to look behind him. And he talks about how, you know, land is like a child and you've got to babysit this crop and you've got to babysit these fields and tend them and nurture them. And then one day in the spring, you climb on your tractor and, you know, there's nothing but green fields behind you. And he talks about with such lyricism and poetry about how that feels and how rewarding that experience is. Those were the moments to me that were beyond anything I could have imagined, just magical. And that's what I was trying to convey in the book. Melanie, you spent five months, I think it was, doing farming, learning about farming at Calypso Farm in Fairbanks. Was that a joyful experience? And what did you do when you were there? What did you do when Natalie visited you, for example? Yes, that was an amazing, joyful experience. And my time at Calypso Farm actually came after I had been farming for about three years and doing large production, vegetable growing, and doing direct sales to chefs around the Seattle area. And, you know, in that time, what I learned, you know, I, learned, I had valuable experience of how to grow vegetables and produce vegetables. But as a farmer, there are many skills that you need like how do you fix a tractor and how do you build a small you know, shed or something like that. And I really wanted to have more time to learn those things. I just didn't have time to learn them in my year as a production farm manager. And so my experience at Calypso Farm was me kind of taking a step back and saying, I'm going to go to farm school and I'm going to take the time to learn these skills that farmers need. And also as a Black woman, I was seeing how there were a lot of skills that you don't see a lot of Black people involved in, like blacksmithing. And at that time, I didn't see a lot of Black people in the world of fiber and textile arts. Those were some of the classes that the Calypso Farm kind of 
spoke to me and why I decided to go there. And so I learned things like blacksmithing, small engine repair. We built a log cabin while we're there. Natalie helped build a log cabin while she was there. And then also working with sheep for natural fibers and textiles. So we they raised sheep, we sheared them, we washed their wool, spun wool into yarn and dyed it. And so those were some of the experiences that I was really looking to get more hands-on. My experience with Natalie was amazing. She stepped off the plane as if I had known her forever. I mean, we had only corresponded through, I think, Instagram at that point. <laughs> and it was, she just like came off the plane as this, I just want to say like sister that I had not seen in a long time and just really embraced me. And I just remember getting in the car and she's like, okay, I'm recording. And she's like, and go. And we just had these like really great deep conversations about everything, whether it was farming, her life as a writer and going through the world of writing as a Black woman and the various books and stories that she had been working on. And it was just a really great experience to have Natalie there with me, immersed in my world and really just participating in all aspects of the farm. She got dirty. She was up there lifting logs for the log cabin. And it was just really amazing. I wish Natalie could be with me on the farm every day. I'm curious where you are on your journey now, you've spoken about the challenges of farming and becoming a farmer. I don't know how long ago you were in Alaska, and I don't know what you've done since then. I think we'd like to hear about that a little bit. So currently, I am working for a nonprofit organization that focuses on organic seed. And one of the many goals is to foster a community of farmers stewarding open pollinated seed, in addition to advocating for policy reform on national organic platforms. I also serve as a board member for the National Young Farmers Coalition, which is a national advocacy network of young farmers fighting for the future of agriculture. And uh, this is really important to me because almost two-thirds of U.S. farmland is now managed by someone over 55. And farmers over 65 outnumber farmers under 35. And in the next decade, 400 million acres of U.S. farmland will change hands from the current generation of retiring farmers. So we really need to have a younger generation of farmers that are prepared to be stewards of the land have the tools and resources to be successful in doing so. And I am also cultivating my own farm enterprise that focuses on growing natural dye flowers such as indigo and marigolds to use on cellulose and protein fibers for textiles, knitting, thinning, and fiber arts. And I am on my own seed journey of learning how to be a seed steward. I have a particular interest in culturally significant seeds among the African diaspora and want to adapt varieties that will thrive in the Pacific Northwest cooler climate. I am a frequent requested panelist at local international farm conferences where I often share my experiences of being a Black woman farmer, and I'm currently seeking my future farm home. The quest for land has been very challenging as land access has its own barriers to prohibiting Black and brown people from ownership, and I'm hopeful that the right opportunity to purchase land will come so I can fully realize my dream of farming. How do we leave things behind that should be left behind? How do we say to farmers, you need to be shifting the crops that you're growing and we're going to support you in doing that? Is that something you talked with people about, something you've thought about? I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, this was one of my observations when I was interviewing these farmers. And, you know, basically my observation was that farmers tended to fall into kind of two categories. You had your traditional commodity farmers, 
right? So they were on one hand, like the Nelsons or the Bluefords. And then you have farmers, they tended to be smaller, organic, vegetable farmers like Soul Fire or what Melanie was farming. And my question was always, how do we bridge this gap? Because the commodity farmers, basically they're all facing the same struggle, right? Access to land, access to capital. But there is this this underlying tension, especially with the the commodity farmers, about how do you transition to these more traditional, more sustainable farming practices? How do you transition from these, you know, monocrops that are depleting the soil, that are basically killing people, right, because of the end products? And I raised it, but I also didn't raise it, Mark. Not because I did not, not want to, but because... When I was writing the book, my first concern, my primary concern was trying to tell the story of how black and brown people have not had access to land, right? There was a more basic fundamental question of survival that I was trying to understand and wrap my mind around. That was the focus as I was writing the book. A second priority was this question of turning to a family like the Nelsons or the Bluefords to say, hey, look, have you, you know, have you ever thought about farming differently? Have you ever thought about cover crops? Or are you thinking about carbon sequestration, right? Are you thinking about these issues? And while I did not have a direct conversation with them about that, I know that they are interested in those things because they are already at such a disadvantage, right? Take the Nelsons, for example. They describe themselves as dry farmers. They're not even farming on irrigated land. They're trying to get to land that is irrigated, right? But they do have issues. I think that, not to speak for them, but I think if they could farm with sustainable, and it's not that they're not sustainable, but if they could shed a lot of the practices, if they could free themselves from having to rely on inputs to improve the soil and all that kind of stuff, I think they would do it. I think that they would embrace that. And so part of what I am trying to do with this book is to bring these two buckets of farmers together and have them have those conversations. And I know that Melanie is part of this young cohort of farmers who are looking to do things differently. And I would be curious to know, Melanie, do you have those conversations with young people your age who might be doing things in a more traditional manner or not? But I don't want to take up all the airtime, but it is something that I was thinking about, Mark, but I was also trying to tell this more urgent story about how do we save the farmers who are left? We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? a tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select, 
These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I want to hear what Melanie has to say about this also, but that is a key issue is that we want there to be more farmers in general, more young farmers in general, more young farmers of color and women in particular. But then we want people to be farming in a different way at the same time. I mean, I will say I've talked to a lot of farmers primarily in Iowa, so therefore primarily white. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, of course, they have the privilege of having the land and many of them having had inherited it and therefore not being in debt and not having those struggles with USDA. But at the same time, they feel that there's no official support to do farming differently or better. It's like, yeah, we don't really care whether we grow corn and soybeans or fruits and vegetables, but we're being paid to grow corn and soybeans and we really don't have a choice. Melanie, your take on this? Well, it's not a conversation that I actually get to have with a lot of people because a lot of the farmers that I do work with are smaller specialty crop farmers. So they're growing many different diverse types of crops. With that said, I also like to kind of meet people where they are and just also point out the fact that even commodity farmers care about the product that they're producing the soil, the land, and sometimes the animals that they're they're caretaking for. So I think that is one thing that we should recognize and value. And then, you know, meeting them where they are is providing them with the tools and resources so that they can make and implement small changes. And oftentimes, you know, to both of your points, it can be very costly, you know, especially when we're talking about hundreds of acres that some people, particularly commodity crops, occupy hundreds of acres. To make it profitable, they often get government subsidies to continue in the practices that they're doing. So they're already incentivized to continue with the practices that they're doing. So I think to answer your question, what we really need is incentives for people to transition to sustainable, regenerative, and organic practices. We don't really have a system for that at this moment where people are incentivized to do those things outside of saying, oh, it's going to make the soil better and it's going to maybe give you more yields. I think that people have a hard time sometimes kind of like understanding like how that's actually going to happen when it might be hurting what their their bottom line is. So I think the key is meeting people where they are and giving them tools and resources and also recognizing that sometimes change might start off small. I know some farmers start with like small fields where they say, I'm going to transition this one field to organic or regenerative and then, you know, see what the results are and then try and transition the rest of their land over time. So I think that the conversations are definitely happening. I think that people are starting to see the benefits of these different systems that will provide longer soil health. And it's just a matter of time of people being able to have the opportunity to transition. I wonder if either or both of you have a vision of how land might be redistributed more fairly now. I think before Ta-Nehisi's Coates's piece about reparations, which I guess was, I don't know, eight years ago at this point, it was a small select group of people that were talking about, about reparations. And then it became a common 
topic to the point where it even gets talked about in Congress, as unlikely as that might be. And now I think the sort of secret phrase is land reform. How do we get land into the hands of people who deserve to farm it, who want to farm it, whether it's young people, women, people of color, descendants of enslaved people, indigenous people, all the people who were shut out of mostly shut out of the great land giveaways of the 19th century. I'm sure you've both thought about this. I just wonder if you have a vision of how this might evolve, how we might see land transitioning into the hands of different kinds of people. I'll jump in and say that, you know, this is a conversation that I've had and find myself having quite a, a bit. But, it, you know, it's it's tricky. It should be simple. You know, I know that at some point Biden's Justice for Black Farmers Act talked about allotting farmland that the U.S. government currently owns and setting that land aside for young farmers, making it available. I think there is an opportunity for a different kind of impact investment. You know, there are folks around who have means. And, I, and I'm thinking, this is just an example. I was talking with some folks, Black people who you know, have done well financially, whether they've been in investment banking or tech, you know, who have expressed interest in coming together and buying land and then turning that land over to young BIPOC farmers who want to farm with a different set of expectations about the return, right? This, this is not a return. They would not be looking to profit. They would be looking to put that land in the hands of young people who want to farm. I think it's going to be a combined effort, frankly. I think that, you know, I, I like what I heard of, of Biden's plan when he was first elected and government is a slow moving ship, you know, and there are all kinds of obstacles. I think that there are probably opportunities in the private sector for people to come together. I think there's also an opportunity for current land owners. You know, there's a lot of land out there that's not being farmed. It's not. It's in the hands of families, but it's not being put to good use. And I think that there are opportunities for those people to come to the table and offer that land in partnership with young farmers or, or nonprofits and, and give people an opportunity to put into practice, you know, all of the things that they have learned. And I think we're going to have to think creatively, in other words, in order to really tackle this. Yes, I'll just add, you know, just thinking about land not being farmed, you know, some of the programs that we do have in out there for land transition are called farmer to farmer programs, where farmers have a direct link with the next generation of farmers, younger farmers, and offering more cost efficient land transfers to incoming farmers. Land is so expensive right now, though a lot of us can't afford it. One of the things that really hurts young farmers entering into the farmer's market is also student loan debt. And so there's a lot of work that needs to happen within policy and reform to really help the next generation of farmers access land. And then like when I think about land models, we have a lot of younger farmers that maybe don't have the financial resources to pay for land, forming cooperative farm models. I think that's one of the many ways of how we're going to see this land reform 
happen over the next generation. And then as far as reparations, one of the things that I like to think of in terms of reparations, the term reparations often is thought of as 40 acres and a mule. But I I feel like what we should be asking for is 40 acres and a tractor. Because if we were to stay up with the times and technology and modernization, in order to steward 40 acres, you need a tractor. I just think that we just need to be a little bit more realistic in our ask of what a reparation or land reform looks for. And then I'll just add one last thing as far as irrigation and having land that has either water rights or irrigation properties. I've been offered free land a few times, and generally it comes with land that's been farmed conventional for years, has a lot of toxins in the soil, and it doesn't have any water capacities. And I feel as though For Black and brown people in particular, when we are getting land, we're getting access to land, I think it's really important for people to provide us with quality Mm -hmm. land and land that will be able to be used to sustain us long term as well. Not to be like beggar being choosy, but I think that realistically, you know, if you get a piece of land that doesn't have access to water, how are you going to water your animals? How are you going to water your crops? You know, how are you going to live off of that land? I think that we need to really have land that is sustainable. It's super insightful. And it doesn't sound at all like beggars being choosers. It sounds like you're saying we want more than crumbs off the table, which is exactly right. What's the honorable relationship between land and people? And do we see that? Can we hope to see that? I think we are starting to see that. I think, you know, part of what was so exciting to me in working on this book was to witness the shift that is happening, that I think is happening, where people's conversations about land, people's understanding of their connection to the land is really changing. And I think part of that, you know, the silver lining of this last 18 months with COVID is people have been forced to really ask themselves some questions about where their food comes from. And I think that COVID kind of pulled the veil off of our belief that food would be relatively available. You know, there was nothing as chilling, and I'll speak personally, there was nothing as chilling as going into a grocery store, first of all, waiting in line to get into a grocery store in those early days of the pandemic. And then getting there and seeing that the shelves were bare. That was chilling. And I think that people across this country really began to reflect on their reliance and the assumptions that they had made about having food that was readily available. And I think we all were feeling very insecure about that in ways that we had not in the past. And what I see, what I saw when I would go around and talk to these farmers, farmers like Melanie, especially these young folks, and also older Black people who never left the land, was this real appreciation for having a deeper, more significant connection to the earth. I think about someone like Karen Washington, who has been at this forever and who is an elder in this space, but has so much wisdom. I think about the Burkettes, um, you know, down in the South, who never left. And just the wisdom that they had. And I think people now are turning to these people with a new appreciation about their wisdom, right? And that's very encouraging to me. So when I look ahead to the future, what I see is a level of activism and engagement, a sense of community that people have around food sovereignty and and food security that I've not seen before. And that gives me hope. And I also 
say that, you know, I think that there is a newfound respect for indigenous practices and indigenous people, and they were doing it right, you know, and and I see that's what gives me hope for the future. I do think that there is a reclaiming of this relationship that we have with the land. I definitely feel as though it was lost because of the negative impact that my grandmother instilled in me about like, you know, you're never going to toil in the soil and you're never going to, you know, clean someone else's bathroom. And, and that was their experience. That was their lived experience of how the land, and, and it wasn't even the land, it was the people made them feel that the land hurt them. And we are healing from this, this trauma that we think was caused by the land, but really it was caused by people. And so you know, land is healing. And the reason why I wanted to get into farming is because I had read how just being outside, how the smell of the soil had this very, I'm going to say medicinal aspect to it. And I think a lot of people are starting to find that we're seeing land as healing for our vets. We're seeing it for people with different stress levels. And we're seeing all around that stewarding the land is building healthier people and relationships with the land. I think that the relationship with land overall in general is changing and more and more people are getting interested and wanting to know how they can have this healing relationship with the land. That's beautiful. Yeah, we are our own harvest. It makes you sort of doubly appreciate the vision of people like Fannie Lou Hamer who were saying this kind of stuff 70 years ago, something like that. And saying it in isolation, saying it without a lot of support from other people and certainly without a lot of official support. Anything either of you want to say that hasn't been said? I just wanted to add one thing, just because you spoke of Fannie Lou Hamer. And one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of is also that the term victory gardens came from African history, African wisdom. And so George Washington Carver, as well as many other people, were recruited by the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, to put these systems in place at the time when the United States was in war and they needed more food. And so, you know, the whole notion of a victory garden was the ideal of a Black farmer. And yet when you see all the propaganda for it, the posters, it's all white people. And so just, you know, talking about not getting credit where credit's due, even like the CSA, you know, the CSA is another concept that was created by a black man. And, you know, we're, we're starting to talk a little bit more about it now, but, you know, we definitely just need to recognize that a lot of these farming practices come from black, brown and indigenous history and knowledge. Melanie, good luck. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hope to see you sometime. Natalie, thank you for the book. Good luck with that. Thanks for organizing this and bringing Melanie on board. Great talking with you both. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having us, Mark. I'm a big fan. I've got your other books and I appreciate the invitation. Take care. See you soon, I hope. Okay. Bye-bye. All righty then, next up, 
my recipe for bitter greens gratin, which is a sort of interesting non-vegan. I want to be very upfront about this. This is a rich dairy-filled dish. It's sort of an old-fashioned moosewood-like treatment of greens and really, really good. The perfect recipe for right now because there are tons of bitter greens in the market and you can use any you like for this. Escarole, kale, of course, collards, dandelion, mustard greens, turnip greens. A mix is really, really good. Get about two pounds of greens, turn on the broiler, preheat that, and put the rack about four, four to six inches from your heat source. If the stems of your greens are thick, then separate the greens from the stems and chop them separately. Put a couple of tablespoons of butter in a large cast iron or otherwise oven-proof skillet and add uh, a chopped onion, maybe a tablespoon of chopped garlic. Cook that until it starts to sizzle. Add those stems if they're thick and cook that all with some salt and pepper until the onion is soft and the stems start to soften about five minutes. And then add the greens a handful at a time, not all at once because otherwise they'll just fall out of the pan. So add a big handful at a time, stir, they'll start to shrivel immediately and keep doing that until you've added all the greens and they start to wilt. That'll be a five-minute process or so. And then add a cup of heavy cream, adjust the heat so that that just bubbles, and cook that until the mixture thickens and the cream will coat the back of a spoon. That'll take three, maybe five minutes. Taste and add salt and pepper as needed. Then turn off the heat and carefully crack four eggs onto the greens and transfer the skillet, salt and pepper on those eggs, please, to transfer the skillet to the broiler and cook that my notes say watching like a hawk until the whites have just set, which will only take two minutes, maybe three. Then sprinkle some Parmesan, maybe a quarter cup, half a cup on top of all of that, as well as an equal amount of breadcrumbs, preferably fresh. Return that to the broiler. I would be remiss if I didn't say a few pats of butter would go a long way on there too. And then just cook that until the top browns a little tiny bit. Serve that hot or warm. It's a real treat. That is it for today. Thank you for listening. I want to thank, of course, Natalie Bazile and Melanie Edwards for coming on the show. They were, as I'm sure you'll agree, incredible. You can follow Natalie on Instagram and Twitter at Natalie Bazile. I'll spell that N-A-T-A-L-I-E-B-A-S-Z-I-L-E. And Facebook at Natalie Bazile Author. Same spell. And then follow Melanie on Instagram, melbell206, that's M-E-L-B-E-L-L-E-206. Natalie's book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, a great read, is available now. Again, thank you for listening. You know where to find me, at Bitman or at Mark Bitman. I want to thank Kate Bitman and Ben Mathis for making the show happen. See you next week. Thanks again for listening. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at MarkBittman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.